When it comes to FFIEC investments and conformance, how have U.S. banking institutions progressed since updated guidance for online banking security was issued by federal banking regulators? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. And here, Amy McHugh, a former IT examiner for the FDIC, explains. Now, Amy, at Clifton Larson Allen, you actually consult with banks about their IT security practices. Based on what you're seeing, do you think that banking institutions are embracing this updated guidance in the ways that regulators want? Are they doing enough? It has been in effect since January 1st, 2012. And beginning at that time, when the agencies would go into financial institutions to form examination, beginning at that time, they were assessing that institution's compliance with the 2011 supplement. What I'm seeing is a gradual implementation, I think, of the 2011 supplement requirements and guidelines. I'm wondering if financial institutions could do a little bit more, could improve their risk assessment process, maybe could communicate better with their internet banking service providers to see how those providers' systems are addressing the 2011 supplement and then integrating that information into their risk assessment and also into the uh, controls that they have in place for their higher-risk customers. And also the customer awareness. I see banks are improving their customer awareness education efforts. Banks frequently put information on their websites. They do statement stuffers, that kind of thing. I also see some banks actually having presentations that they either have on their website or that they send to their customers about uh, electronic funds transfer fraud, about keylogger, man-in-the-middle attacks. And I think that those are all good efforts. I think the efforts could be enhanced and, you know, something that, at least with the banks that I see, which typically are smaller banks, there's a fear that they may be causing undue burden to their customers by implementing these additional some additional protections and that what they want to do is serve their customer, which is what they should be doing, but that they fear that if they place too many quote-unquote burdens on their customers as far as additional security procedures that the customers have to abide by in order to transmit these electronic funds transfers, that they'll go elsewhere. The customers will go elsewhere. And that's something that I'm seeing, regrettably, some financial institutions kind of stepping back from enhancing their procedures in order to please the customer. Before you joined your most recent company, you spent some time with the FDIC where you actually served as an IT examination analyst, and I think this probably gives you some unique perspective. Amy, how has ACH and wire fraud evolved in recent years based on what you've seen? Well, the first thing I've seen is that there is, again, an increased awareness probably through these line of cases, beginning with PACCO, Experimental Choice Escrow. There's an increased awareness in electronic funds transfer fraud. There's also an increased push, shall we say, by the regulatory agencies to ensure that the financial institutions, again, are aware and that that information is passed along to the customers. One thing I do see is that, I think it's been noted before, the very large institutions, Chase, Bank of America, et cetera, have robust programs for, you know, anomaly monitoring of electronic funds transfers, making sure that the activity is typical for the customer, increasing fraud awareness procedures. And so the fraudsters are kind of moving down to the smaller institutions where they may not have the level of awareness or the level of institutional experience and skills to implement an effective program to limit electronic funds transfer fraud. I also see for some very, very small institutions that I've visited here in Iowa that they may not have online ACH and wire transfer initiation, 
but they are still susceptible to fraudulent activities, primarily through customers' email being hacked, and then a fraudster spoofing their email address, sending an email request for a wire transfer to an out-of-state account, stating that, well, I'm not available for a callback, I'm out-of-state, I don't have access to a phone. And then the smaller banks believe they know the customer, which they usually do, and they just want to help that customer, so they just kind of maybe don't pay as much attention as they should to their policies as far as processing funds transfers, and they actually assist with this fraud because, again, they don't want to offend their customer. They want to help, and they take it at face value that this email, this request is coming from the customer and that, again, they just want to help. So I see that quite frequently, especially with the smaller banks here in Iowa, and that's something that I think can be remedied by having detailed implemented policies as far as we require that any wire transfer request not received in person gets a callback to the phone number on record. So that's one really basic control that I think could eliminate a lot of these less technological wire transfer frauds. Amy, it's interesting that you note community banks or smaller institutions being the ones that are at most risk. And in these recent waves of distributed denial of service attacks, of course, the possibility that fraud or account takeover attempts could be linked to some of these DDoS attacks is something that regulators have warned about. And they've specifically noted that smaller institutions should be implementing mitigation practices. Is this an area that you've seen institutions focusing on, looking at DDoS as perhaps being used as a mode of distraction for ACH and wire fraud? No, not really. Not the institutions that I've been to. Again, one or two of the largest institutions that I've been to have included some kind of acknowledgement and basic information maybe in their incident response plans, their business continuity plans about DDoS attacks, maybe masking then additional underlying electronic funds transfer fraud. Smaller institutions, I don't see any evidence that they are maybe as aware that they have implemented that kind of information into their plans for their bank. I think that's just not something that has maybe filtered down to the smaller institutions at this point. It is definitely something that I believe they should integrate into their incident response and business continuity plans. They should talk with their Internet service providers regarding that provider's particular plans for addressing these attacks should they happen. And then what about the state of account takeover? Do you see these incidents growing? I do see them growing. Now, whether that reflects increased um, account takeover fraud in general or increased reporting by financial institutions about these, these incidents, that I'm not clear about. But I do see more reports of at least attempted and successful uh, electronic funds transfer fraud. And then what about the losses? Would you say that the losses related to account takeover fraud have increased in the last 12 to 18 months? Um, no, I don't see any any real increase in any of the losses. Again, the losses I see are smaller. They're usually maybe a few hundred dollars to I think maybe forty or 50000 I've seen. So that in itself I don't necessarily see increasing. I see maybe maintaining. However, I was at a bank performing an examination when I was notified that they had actually stopped a fraudulent ACH origination request in the amount of $2 million. And they did that because they have implemented a couple of layers of anomaly monitoring and detecting software in their system. 
Well, that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask about next, and that is, do you see banking institutions improving their detection and notification techniques where these online account takeover incidents are concerned? And it sounds like institutions are making some investments there. I do see that, particularly in the larger institutions that I've been to. Again, the anomaly monitoring and detection solutions that I have seen that the larger banks are implementing are very um, costly, first of all, and they're also very time-intensive in the sense that setting up the system, kind of educating, if you will, the system on the customer's behavior patterns. So it's it's very costly as far as, as money and also for time. And smaller institutions just don't have either of those resources in order to implement those. Again, those smaller institutions frequently have fewer people either performing online ACH or wire transfer origination, or they don't allow online ACH and wire transfer initiation. And so any kind of anomaly monitoring detection that they may have in place is manual, which, again, can be time-intensive. And, again, with a manual system, it may be harder to detect patterns of behavior over the past maybe few months so that those people who are monitoring those systems are aware that this actually is something out of characteristic for this customer. What final thoughts or advice would you offer to banking institutions? First of all, they need to talk with their Internet banking service providers, if they haven't already, to get information from those providers about the range of options that are available for online funds transfer uh, security procedures. Then they need to perform a thorough risk assessment of their banking services to ensure that they have implemented the appropriate security procedures based upon their provider's offerings and also based upon the particular circumstances of each customer, how many high-risk transactions they perform, frequency of those transactions, the amounts of those transactions, to make sure that the controls they have in place are sufficiently tailored to the particular customer. I also think that they should, again, push back on the clients and say, well, these particular security procedures we're going to require for our protection and for your protection. Again, the complex password, changing passwords periodically, if possible, I think dual control, again, is very important. Out-of-band confirmations, so you initiate a wire transfer, we're going to call you to make sure that that's appropriate, make sure that's done. Also, the banks, I believe, should implement some kind of anomaly monitoring and detection system, be that manual if they're a smaller institution or automated, to ensure that there's some kind of awareness of the customer's pattern of behavior as far as electronic funds transfer requests, where they're sending their funds transfers, who they're sending them to, et cetera. And then set up some kind of institutional reporting system. So periodically, maybe monthly, there's some kind of review and analysis of electronic funds transfer activity that is reported up to an appropriate committee and then potentially to the board so that there's senior management awareness of these electronic funds transfers activity, trends, patterns, et cetera, so that they can kind of make sure that they have implemented the appropriate security procedures for each particular customer's behavior. Again, we've just heard from Amy McHugh of Clifton Larson Allen. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.